you're listening to CITR Radio, FM 102, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. And it's time right now for the Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show. Today on the Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show, interviews with Aaron Chapman, author of the book Liquor, Lust, and the Law, all about the penthouse nightclub on Seymour Street. Plus, an interview with Death, Death from Detroit. To prepare you for Death from Detroit, thought I'd play a bunch of Detroit-centric tunes. Gonna play something by The Underdogs, Friday at the Hideout. Then The Mushrooms, with the song Burned, written by Bob Seger and sung by Glenn Fry. Then some more underdogs written by Bob Seeger again with Down on Your Knees. And now I'm going to begin with something to prepare you for the band death by Pure Hell from Philadelphia. So right now to prepare you for death, here's Pure Hell from Philadelphia and a bunch of bands from Detroit. And in an interview with Death, from Detroit, and in an interview with Aaron Chapman, author of Liquor, Lust, and the Law, all on the Nardwar, the human serviette radio show on CITR, FM 102, Cable 102, Vancouver, Columbia, Canada! Oh, 
the Nardwar to Human Serviette radio show. Thank you. Thank you. And right off the bat, Death, is it true that Gladys Knight was afraid of you guys? <laughs> well, when we were recording this, the album, uh, you know, Gladys Knight was in the studio and we knew it was her. And my brother David, you know, wanted to get up in the studio to meet her and, uh, Don Davis, who was producing the album, uh, had asked us, uh, would you like to meet this rock and roll band that I'm working with? And she said, yeah. She said, what's the name of them? And he said, Death. And then she told him to lock the door. <laughs> and, of course, you guys were out of Detroit. And I'd like to ask you, Death, a bit about Detroit DJ Robin Seymour, because he did stuff on CKLW, which relates to Windsor, you know, Detroit Windsor. What's the influence of Windsor, you know, Canada and the band Death? What's the Canadian influence on you guys? Well listen to CKLW because it was right across the water in Windsor from Detroit. And uh, we love C. My mom actually loved CKLW. It was in her little radio uh, on the kitchen table, on the kitchen counter. And that's the little radio where we first heard the Rolling Stones, I Can't Get No Satisfaction, where we uh, first heard James Brown, Bob Seger, all the great, uh, I mean, they just played a diverse group of music. CKLW was one of the best stations um, around the Detroit area, even though they were broadcasting right across the water from Windsor, Ontario, in Canada. Did you ever hear any Canadian bands like the Ugly Ducklings from Toronto at all? Uh, I don't know if we heard the Ugly Ducklings uh, on CKLW. Uh, we did hear a lot of the Guess Who, Susie Quattro, and some other people. 
What was hey, the... It's saw Bachman Turner Overdrive, too. That's right, Bachman Turner Overdrive. What was Ted Nugent like back then, death, in the 1960s and early 70s? What was Ted Nugent like? Uh, he was a cool, young rock and roller with a great band called the Amboy Dukes, Ted Nugent and the Amboy Dukes. They put out an awesome song called Journey to the Center of the Mind. And that was that was a big influence on us. Did you guys ever see Rodriguez play? Because he's got a movie out now. You guys have a movie coming out about you, Death, or is out right now. Did you ever see Rodriguez, or did you ever meet Rodriguez? You know, we never met Rodriguez, but I wouldn't be too surprised if my brother David, um, you know, who died in 2000, we, we, we wouldn't be too surprised if he knew Rodriguez. How about all the other great Detroit artists, like Question Mark and Mysterians, or bands that played at, like, The Hideout, like The Underdogs, The Fugitives, The Four of Us, The Unrelated Segments? Do you remember any of those bands at all, Death? Uh, Mark and the Mysterians, we loved Mark and the Mysterians. As a matter of fact, we did a show with Mark and the Mysterians at the Lincoln Center um, last year in New York. How's Question Mark doing? I heard that he lost a lot of his possessions in a house fire a few years ago. Yeah, he um, he seems to be doing he seems to be doing okay, and uh, um, yeah, they the the band was great. How about the actual scene of teenage bands that I kind of alluded to there from the hideout scene? Did you ever go to the hideout at all? How old were you guys, say, in the mid sixties, late sixties? There were you able to go to teen dances at all? <laughs> yeah, we were pretty young. We weren't we weren't old enough to get into the to uh, into the hideout, but. Uh, a lot of the bands that played there, you know, we uh, we knew about. You guys didn't get a chance to go to the hideout. How about some other venues like Greystone Hall? Did you ever play Greystone Hall with Death? No, we never played. See, Greystone Hall was a hall that our mom and dad went to. They used to go there to see Etta James and Chuck Berry and uh, Jackie Wilson and, you know, all those great entertainers of the 50s. Now, you guys were partly rediscovered at a party that Julian... Is Julian your son? <laughs> yes, he is. Your son Julian went to a party, and then he heard your music from Death being played, the Triangle Records single at a party. What party was he at? Like, whose party was he at? Uh, this was a party in San Francisco, and it was kind of an underground, I don't know, a rave-like party where they played just a lot of old, historic... Uh, and, uh, you know, I mean, hard to find music. And, uh, you know, Julian had called us up from uh, San Francisco and said, hey, Dad, you know, did you know they were playing your music at, at these parties and people were going crazy over it? And your sons are also in a band called Rough Francis, who opened up for Most Deaf. And Most Deaf is a huge Deaf fan. How did Most Deaf find out about Death? <laughs> well, you know, he just uh, kind of finds out about it, you know, through the whole story and through Drag City, the record label. And, you know, he just kind of looked us, looked us up. You know, as a matter of fact, he came he came right to our house in, in uh, Jericho, Vermont, and uh, hung out with us. And he wants to play you guys in a movie? Like, he wants to be you? <laughs> That's what we hear. So I guess that's going to, that's yet to come, uh, we suppose. And we're speaking here live to the band Death on the Nardwar to Human Serviette radio show. Death, when your single came out, what was the response? I heard it got some light rotation on the station W4. What was the response to the single when it came out? 
yeah, that's exactly what it was. Uh, people really liked the music, but they didn't understand the name at the time. And so we had a lot of trouble with the name. And W4 really liked the music. And uh, But they would only play it like late at night and maybe a couple of times at drive time. And we were really trying to push it, you know, to get them to do, to do a regular rotation on it. When did you record Politicians in My Eyes? Was that 75 or was it before 75? Because it came out in 76. When did you actually record it? We recorded it at United Sounds at the beginning of 1975. The masters for all the recordings you guys found in a basement? Uh, supposedly had them up in the attic. That's where uh, he kept all the old masters. And uh, my brother David used to bring in more stuff and more stuff and more stuff. And he'd, all, he'd put it all in the attic. And um, that's where we kept it. So was that the attic of your house, or was it the attic of Grooseville Studios? I guess I was just curious. It's amazing this stuff was preserved all these years. Was it a studio that you found it in, or was it your own house that you found it in, in the attic? Well, you know, we had, I had some tapes, and then my brother David, before he died, he brought me some, some more death tapes. The amazing thing about it is the original two-inch master that was recorded at United Sounds we actually found at the old Grooseville Studios just a couple of years ago with the permission of Don Davis, who owned Grooseville uh, Productions. It's incredible that he didn't throw it out. How close do you think he was to throwing it out? How close were you, like, to losing it all? Uh, well, you know, fortunately for Don Davis, he wasn't throwing out any of his masters, but they were just, they were just pres being preserved. And uh, we went in and saw a huge room of of amazing master tapes. I mean, everybody from Albert Collins to Gladys Knight, David Ruffin, George Clinton, um, he has um, a wealth of master tapes that are totally unbelievable. Why didn't the LP come out? Why didn't your LP come out when it was originally recorded? Was it an LP or was it just a demo? Like, why didn't it come out? Was anyone else interested? Well, we, we had a, a small bit of interest, but what happened was we originally tried to pin down 12 songs, but uh, when we got to song number seven, uh, everything kind of broke loose because uh, Don Davis really, uh, he was facing as much rejection for selling, for trying to move the record as we were for, uh, you know, doing the record. For the actual record, did you have an idea what the art would be? Years later, of course, it's been released on Drag City, and we're speaking here to Death on an Ardwater Human Serviette radio show. The cover art that came out now, is that the cover art that you envisioned? What sort of cover art did you envision back then, and is this the cover art that you envisioned, the one that came out? That uh, was my brother David's, my late brother David's vision, and it was. He wanted the skyline of Detroit, and he wanted the album to be called for the whole world to see and we made sure that we honored him when the record was finally released. When you guys signed to Groovesville, did you guys get a Cadillac? Uh, well, believe it or not, our mother had a Cadillac, and we used that to go back and forth to the recording studio. But we definitely had plans on getting a Cadillac. <laughs> Because Groovesville gave you some stuff. They gave you support. And that's partly why the band kind of disbanded, wasn't it? Because once you lost the support, it was impossible pretty much for you to put out the LP yourself. Well, you got to understand now, Wars, that uh, Groovesville owned the stellar recording studio in Detroit, which was United Sounds. 
I mean, this was the recording studio where Jackie Wilson recorded Reet Petit. This was the recording studio where the Who and the Rolling Stones came in and did some tapes. So this was the stellar recording studio. And you're right. When we uh, stopped being under contract with Groosville, there was no more recording sessions scheduled at United Sounds for death. And the deal with Groosville, that sort of happened because Clive Davis didn't like the name of your band. Have you sent a copy of the record to Clive since then? Any contact with him? You know, that's a good idea now, Warren. Maybe we'll do that. <laughs> that's what I was thinking. Like, hey, it finally did come out. Yeah, maybe you could talk to, to, to Clive on behalf of us and give him a record. Oh, yeah, I'm sure Nardware the Human Serviette has the juice. But I would love... <laughs> I, I would love to do that. With punk rock, where were you guys when you first heard punk rock? When you first heard it, what did you think? Because what you were doing was complete proto-punk, complete punk. When you first heard punk, do you remember where you were or what you heard? Well, it, back in the 70s, we, we, we didn't call ourselves punks. We, we looked at people like... Johnny Rotten and the Sex Pistols, that, that was punk. But they was calling us punk because uh, our music was fast, it was kind of loud. And the first time I heard real, what I call something close to punk, was when I got, <clears throat> when I went to an Alice Cooper concert. And when I saw Alice Cooper, I said, I, you know, I went back to the to the practice place where we practiced, and I said, dude, we got to play music like this. This is the real rock and roll. And I wasn't very convincing or something because the rest of the guys in the band didn't buy it until David went to see The Who. Now, when The Who played at Cobo Arena, as it was called back then, it's now Joe Lewis Arena, uh, David went and saw The Who, and then he was convinced that we had to play rock and roll. But only our rock and roll was a little bit faster than what we was hearing from, like, Alice Cooper and, 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 and the other guys. So it eventually ended up being called punk. I guess what I'm curious about is what happened when you first heard punk, or what I meant by that is when you first heard fast music again, similar to your band, what did you think of the newer bands that were playing faster music? Were you thinking, hey, maybe we can re-release our record or get back together in the death format? Well, you know what? We, we kind of like, um, we listened to bands like The Clash, The Sex Pistols, Patty Smith, and we would say, wow, this, this, this stuff kind of reminds us of the stuff, man, that we was doing back in Detroit. And, uh, you know, by that time, you know, my brother and I, you know, we were involved with reggae music, and, uh, you know, we never thought in a, in a million years that the death music would, uh, would make the, uh, uh, should I say, would be found the way it was, and, and uh, you know, it, it was bittersweet to us, because we always thought that it would be our best-kept rock and roll secret that the world would never hear. A lot of people have said that Bad Brains or the band Pure Hell, have you heard of the band Pure Hell at all? Some people call them the first black punk band. Did you hear of Pure Hell at all from Philadelphia? Yes, we heard of them. Yes, we did. As a matter of fact, we met the uh, lead singer in New York. What can you tell the people about Pure Hell? Because they were pre-Bad Brains, right? Yeah, that's what the, that's what we believe. They were pre-bad brings, yeah. And a lot of people have, uh, have said that, that, you know, our sound is comparable to the bad brains. And, 
you know, and that uh, we, we're just proud of that because uh, the fact that we made this mu music in 74 and 75 and people say we preceded all those guys, it's, uh, that's an honor. Have you heard Mick Collins from the Dirt Bombs at all? He covers politicians in my eyes with his band, the Dirt Bombs. Do you know Mick Collins from the Dirt yes, Bombs? Yes, we do. He's a good friend of ours. And you know what? We are honored that the Dirt Bombs, they're a great Detroit band. Did he come out to your reunion show when you did one in Detroit? Who came out when you played in Detroit? Well, you know what? He did come out to the Detroit to the Magic Stick. And, uh, yeah, he introduced himself that night. And we ended up playing with the Dirt Bomb on the same show that we played with, uh, with that, that, at the uh, Lincoln Center. Who else was at the gig? Were there any people from the death days that came back that you hadn't seen in a long time? Who showed up at your reunion gig death? A lot of old friends, um, relatives, um, just people who remember some of the loud stuff that we was playing. And at the time we was playing that stuff, they were holding their ears telling us to turn it down. But now they, they, they appreciate it. Speaking of venues and whatnot, Russ Gibb. Do you remember Russ Gibb at all, the Grand A Ballroom? Yeah, we remember Russ Gibb at the Grand A Ballroom, man. That's where the Rolling Stones played. I had a lot of great Motown acts. Uh, the Who used to play there. The Grand Ballroom was the place, man. The MC5 used to rule there. He did a lot of gigs there where he filmed stuff, especially in later years with punk bands. Were there any films, video of the original Death lineup out there? Uh, no, we never did any video or any film, unfortunately, in the 70s. It was all about recording in the studio, man. At the Fun Fun Fest, I noticed you guys had matching outfits. Do you still wear matching outfits on stage? Uh, sometimes we do, but uh, we kind of basically just base it off of one color, and we kind of like reflect one another, but we just stay comfortable. But sometimes we do wear the uniforms. It depends on the venue. And, Death, how hard was it to relearn the songs when you started getting back together? How hard was it, especially with your brother passing away and stuff? It must have been kind of hard to learn the songs, or was it easier to learn the songs because you were doing it for him? It was very emotional, very, very emotional. When Bobby Duncan, uh, the very first rehearsal, when we had uh, turned Bobby on to the music and we was wondering if, if he could really play it and, 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 and kind of, you know, pick up the mantle for David, when he first played those uh, chords to keep on knocking and we jumped into the song, we had to actually stop because tears were streaming down our eyes so bad and we became so emotional because you have to understand that we hadn't played that song since 1978 and this was the year 2008 have you guys death played darts recently at all <laughs> yeah the phone book <laughs> when david took the phone book have we played darts you mean that's yeah david used to play darts all the time that's how we found grooveville productions he put he pinned a uh a yellow page is to the wall and threw a dart uh, at the producer section and it landed on Grooseville Productions. And lastly, Death, I'm going to play right now Keep On Knocking and also going to try to fit in Politician in My Eyes. What can you tell the people about Keep On Knocking? Man, that song, we wrote that song. You know what? We were, chat we were jamming around and girls used to, you know, we used to always practice during the time that school would let out. And there was these girls who were friends of our sisters, and they was, like, knocking on the door trying to get into our practice. We didn't hear them until we stopped. And we would just, uh, 
when David heard the knocking, he just went into the to the rift, man, and then we just kind of was playing around with it, saying, keep on knocking. And then David happened to have the tape recorder going, the, the small cassette tape, and he kept listening to that over and over. He said, man, we're on to something here. This is hot. And uh, he said, this is like, this is really rock and roll. So we just continued to craft the song, came up with the lyrics, and it was just, it was just great. Dennis just provided the engine on the drums, and, and that, that song was born, man. Well, thanks so much, Def. Really appreciate you phoning into the Nardwarta Human Serviette radio show. Keep on rocking in the free world, and do-do-do-do-do. Do-do!
You're listening to the Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show. And what did we just hear right there? We're joined by a special guest. Who are you, special guest? My name is Aaron Chapman. A.O. Chapman, please explain what happened there. It was a, a collision of two cultures there. The Nips and then Leroy Brown. Please explain. That Things was, are exploding here. That was a classic track from the great British band, the Nipple Erectors, featuring the one and only Shane McGowan uh, from a recording. God, when was that now? That was, it was in the... It was about 1977, 78. So this is all uh, just sort of cusp of punk uh, and certainly long before the Pogues uh, got going. And uh, all the time in the world, one of my favorite tracks, and kind of a tradition that every time I'm on your show, we start with that track. Yeah, and what did we play right after that? Right after that. Because that brings us right up to date. Right up to the present day. That was was, uh, Danny Filipponi and myself at the Penthouse Nightclub in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, at the night of the book launch for uh, my new book, Liquor, Lust, and Law, uh, we got up and we did a song with the band. It was great. It was hilarious. It was a lot of fun. And that's what we're talking about today in the Nardwater Human Serviette Radio Show, Liquor, Lust, and... The Law. No, A.O. Chapman. Okay. Before it was the Nips, and now it's Big Bad Leroy Brown. Maybe let's just go over who are you. Like, who are you exactly? Like, Get in the Bed and the Tree Fort. Get in the Bed. Get in the Bed Get in the Bed was actually your title for a book that I haven't written yet. Well, it's actually been written, but it's just the diary entries from my time in the Real Mackenzie's because I kept uh, a little bit like uh, Hank, uh, kept... uh, a bit of a tour diary as as I was on the road that was in that in that band I, which I joined when I was 21 I was the original member of the Real McKenzies and left in the sort of late 90s and I kept a little story going in, in all the journals and whatnot. And I came on, I was, I came on your show, or either I was with you, and I read some of them out. And you said you have got to publish this. This is amazing. And and you said you should call it "Get in the Van." You should call it "Get in the Bed." I think because of all the crazy sex stories that were in it. The pure filth, and it's it interesting. And now your filth. first book is filled with filth. This this is my first book. Congratulations, Liquor, Lust, and the Law. It is a top ten, actually top five book uh, in BC. Because you would say when I'd interview bands, not enough filth. I could ask them for tour stories. You'd be like, come on, that's not a tour story. We want some filth, and you have delivered on the filth <laughs> with this book we're going to be talking here today. I think, fact, I think you only... didn't put filth in the title, uh, didn't you? Lust. I did. Lust, lust, it's, filth? All, it's all there. Liquor, lust, and the law. You can't have one without the other, or I, eventually the law shows up. And you also introduced me to legendary band Lick the Pole from yes. Vancouver, and Rebecca from Lick the Pole was actually at the release she party was, yeah. for your book. Amazing. Amazing Lick, to see her. Lick the Pole. Then you also worked at Red Hot Video I in did. Vancouver, British Columbia, I did for, for about uh, what is Red Hot Video? It's long gone now, but it was a it was an adult video store. It was firebombed by the Squamish Five. By the Squamish Five, but that was in the early eighties. Uh, after it was probably about the sort of late nineties, maybe ninety eight. Maybe it was just after I left the McKenzie's and just before I started touring with the Hanson Brothers and No Means No Guys, I was desperate for a job. I was going to do anything. And my buddy said, listen, I know they're hiring at this video store. I said, easy, video store. I didn't even think. I didn't even think I'd ask what it was. I just said, show up. I couldn't believe when I showed up that morning that uh, it was at that place. And some of the stuff that I saw there was, you talk about the underbelly of Vancouver. That could be a book of its own. Yeah, you can name names. Like, you came I on could my name show, names. I remember. Famous people came in, or as well as people that were shooting films in Vancouver at the time, came in to get a title. 
And uh, now I'm not so uh, I'm not so uh, you know puritan that, that whatever you want to come in and you get a video that's whatever it's a, it's a it's a it's a big world out there you 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 can do what you want but the, some of these people would come in day after day after day it was incredible and again you've always made me think something weird's going to happen when I'm eating a cup of soup because it reminds me of the legendary AO story of oh was that when uh, I I managed to uh, I was staying at somebody's house in the real Mackenzie's we were we were put up. And I took a wrench, and I took a, cup of, a couple of packs of cup of soup, and I put it in the shower head, uh, some beef bovril cup of soup, and stuck it in the, uh, poured it into the shower head. So when the, their, their shower head, when they would turn the water on, it would be, this is a great practical joke to play really anywhere. Uh, but I, you pour it, and then the water comes out brown, for a, and it smells like beef in the shower for quite a long time. And do you know if that ever happened? I did it. But I'm telling you. Happened? Well, I don't know. We left afterwards. We just left them with, like, that time bomb waiting to go off. You also put in a cistern too. <laughs> That's all. This all those stories will be told in liquor and lo- not liquor less than love. But it'll be told in get get. <laughs> they're in the, liquor less than all. Tell they're me. not in that book. No, they'll be in the, they'll be in my rock and roll book. Uh, probably uh, do Scotsman dream of tartan sheep, which will be the real Mackenzie's book. I'll write eventually. And Al, you also know me, and I know you through Harlan Ellison. You Harlan Ellison. That interview that we did with Harlan Ellison. People still talk about it today. <laughs> Why? Well, because we were interviewing him. And this was in probably this would have been the mid '90s, would it not? I think it was the early '90s. Was it early '90s? Yeah, it would have been. That's true. That's what it been early '90s when we were here at CITR. And Harlan Ellison is a science fiction writer of some renown. And we, you, well, pardon me, we were asking him. Well, you did the interview, and you asked if I'd like to sit in on it. And I was yeah. Like, yeah, sure. Yeah, and I said, yeah, I wanted you to to get in on this. And you, uh, as always, you had done a tremendous amount of uh, research. Well, actually, uh, I'd done none. I know, but, but I... it sounded like you had. Because you asked him all these pertinent questions, like for the episode that he had written of Star Trek uh, that Joan Collins was in, did you get to lick her? And, and things like that sort of caught him off guard. Now, you have to understand, a man of Ellison's stature, his uh, literary agent, sends him out in these interviews, and he makes him uh, sort of talk to a bunch of yes-men. So I think he was a little put off by answering some questions by people who were clearly not fans, necessarily, of his. Not that I'm not a fan of Harlan's, but other people who sort of know every page of all the work he's done. I've read, truthfully, very little of his work. Uh, so we, don't, we broke the news to him that Rick Griffin, the Grateful Dead artist... Uh, had passed away, and he did not know about this, so he was phased by that. And he said he was going to need a few minutes to sort of collect his thoughts, and we were kind of, oh, geez, we didn't mean to be the bearer of bad news or whatever. But then he, uh, we got him on the, on the line again, and then his mood had, had he, was, he was noticeably fatigued with, with the line of questioning, and then he sort of sounded off on us. This was all in aid of when he came to Vancouver to do a book reading, and when he showed up, uh, he further made mention of it to those in the audience. Now, I, you and I were not there that night, but then it was, we heard about this afterwards, and it was written up in the papers, and Ellison fans castigated us, and other people who just thought he was a stick in the mud uh, you know, thought otherwise. So here's your big comeback, A.O. Chapman. Liquor, lust, and the law! Uh, yes, and it's, and it's probably selling more than Harlan Ellison, at least currently, uh, or at least in this last couple of months, since it's come out in, came out in the beginning of uh, November. So, A.O. Chapman, what is the penthouse, for people who don't know? Well, what the, is the penthouse? The, Liquor, Lust, and the Law is your book about Liquor, the Lust, penthouse. Liquor, Lust, and the Law is, is the first book about the penthouse. It has over 160 photographs in it uh, of a nightclub in Vancouver, a famous place that's been around since 1947. In actuality, the building's been around much earlier. It was run uh, by the Filipponi family who started it, who still run it today. And it was begun by four brothers, Joe Ross, Mickey, Jimmy, who uh, initially had begun what you might call an after-hours club in Vancouver. Uh, 
in the, Vancouver, certainly in the 40s and 50s, um, pardon me, all the way up to the 60s, didn't have, clubs didn't have liquor licenses. So it was almost like, you'd almost think this was Prohibition days, where people had to sneak in booze in a, in a bottle, and, had, and then the club sold ice and pop and whatnot. Um, and police would come in and do these dry squad raids. Well, this happened throughout the, uh, a few decades, and uh, all the way up until 1968, people would be uh, shocked to find out that uh, places like the Commodore, even, uh, in Vancouver, the legendary Commodore Ballroom, didn't get a liquor license until now, 1968. In fact, some of the no-fun, you know, uh, appellations that people make about the city probably stem from those old Puritan liquor laws that were, you know, dreamt up by the city fathers back in the 1920s. So anyway, the, the, the penthouse has really been a place that's uh, been around in Vancouver for, for multiple decades. A lot of celebrities went there after uh, they saw shows. A lot of musicians went there after they performed shows. Athletes went there. The who's who of people came through that little you know, innocuous-looking building on Seymour Street that still stands there today. And there has been the mystery of, was it a mafia family that ran it? Was it all, you know, was the murder of Joe Filipponi in 1983 uh, a gang? Well, you, the book sort of lists it all out, and you can, de- you can decide for yourself. Um, but it's uh, the fact that it's still uh, alive and well and doing business and, and uh, in Vancouver is a testament to, to, to its, uh, you know, to, the, to not only the family for, for running it this long and, uh, and running it successfully, but, uh, but the fact that it's still there in a city that, if you've been to Vancouver, if you're listening from outside, or if you're from here, you know how much the city's changed, and it's still there. It opened originally as Uncle Joe's Apartment, and now there's a club called Joe's Apartment. That's right. Well, the people who began Joe's Apartment on Granville Street liked the, I liked the sound of the name, uh, so they, they took it. But it has no other affiliation to the, to the penthouse. At the book release party for Liquor, Lust, and the Law by Aaron Chapman, we're speaking here to Aaron Chapman, author of Liquor, Lust, and the Law, about the Penthouse Club in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. I asked someone, when you think of the penthouse, what do you think of? That's what I asked, like a random person there. Yeah. And they said to me, Thursdays, amateur night. <laughs> Yeah, they do. They had a they had as a, a guy a junior there. It was one of the uh, one of the nighttime managers there, and he uh, and he hosts that. I, I haven't been down to see it. I missed it. I had a I had a gig that night. I couldn't get a chance to see it, but I heard it was very popular and it's a, a lot of fun. Amateur night at the penthouse, and also at your record release book release party. It was quite amazing because there were some older ladies there in the meat seats. Could you explain about that, please? Well, it was incredible that night because not only I think it was as I commented uh, that night uh, when you were there. I thought it's probably there was a who's who of people there. You had some music people, film people, book people. You really don't see parties like that uh, every every year in Vancouver. And I, I think everybody's come back and told myself and Danny Filipponi, uh, the owner of the penthouse, uh, how great a time they had. I, I think it was the only time that both Randy Rampage from DOA and Dal Richards were in the same room together. Legendary Vancouver band leader who's now ninety three. Who's now? Who's now? He's ninety five. He's going to ninety five birthday coming up in January. And and Randy Rampage, of course, from Legendary DOA, in one room together, hanging out shoulder to shoulder. Uh, no, I asked Randy Rampage how he remembered the penthouse, and he said he liked the steak and the salad at the penthouse. Yes, yeah. the steak and the salad. Well, at the there penthouse? was a, there was an upstairs restaurant that ran late. Late, went very late at the penthouse. In fact, that was the whole thing about the penthouse. That's why people went there is because it was open so late. It was open until 5 in the morning for many years. Uh, but there was an upstairs restaurant called the Steak Loft. 
and the food was great. I mean, it was this was gone well before I ever walked in there myself. But when you talk to the old uh, customers that went there and some of the old celebrities and people, they said the food was great, the people were great, and uh, you get a, you, you would. It was the first place in Vancouver that you'd walk up, the, the, and you'd sit down, and then the chef would come out on a big piece of wood with some raw meat, and you'd simply and hand you the knife, and you'd cut on this thing how thick you wanted the steak, and that's why that's what you. And they went and fried it up right in front of you. Incredible. How long did that last? That ran from uh, basically through the 1950s into the mid-1970s, uh, I, 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 as far as rec- records I've seen. Vancouver's version of the Empire State Building and Eiffel Tower. That's what Jack Wasserman described to Pentos as. Yep. Filled with hookers. Well, that's, that's the thing. By, by the uh, mid-1970s, uh, a lot of nightclubs, it's not a little bit like today, if people who go around to the city today will know that there are certain corners or certain streets known for where you might see prostitutes on strolls or these little sections of the city that uh, and whatnot. But back then, uh, prostitution in Vancouver was very commonly found. She was on the street a little bit as, as well, but it was very commonly found in some nightclubs and hotel lounges. Uh, I've looked at police reports that even found uh, you know, prostitution being a... a Police concern at places like the Bayshore Hotel, where, of course, Howard Hughes stayed in 1972. And you've done many tours of that, Vancouver. That's right. That, that, whole, that's a whole places. other thing on the Howard Hughes thing. Anyway, but, but the penthouse was just one of those clubs. Uh, and Did it's, Howard Hughes make it to the penthouse? He never no, really he, left. Uh, sad, sadly, no. He just stayed up in that room the whole six months he was there. So. Did Jimi Hendrix make it to the penthouse, do you know? No, but Led Zeppelin did. The background of Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, though, is kind of important because, quote, Vancouver presents no interest to the casual visitor. That was from the Confessions of Alistair Crowley, Chapter 57. Nobody in Vancouver buys art. That's from the Andy Warhol Diaries, page one. And, quote, Vancouver is a handsome hellhole, which is from... Dylan Thomas. Which is from Liquor Lust in the Law. Yes. Can you explain that a little bit? Well, like, here's Alistair Crowley dissing Vancouver. Vancouver presents no interest to the casual visitor. We have Andy Warhol saying nobody in Vancouver buys art. And we have Dylan... T- we have a lot of people dissing Vancouver. What was Vancouver like at that time? Well, Why have, are these people doing all this dissing? Well, they probably have a, a fair point. You have to imagine. I mean, I'm born in 1971, so... So, and I'm born and raised in Vancouver, so I remember in my early teenage years what Vancouver essentially looked like before Expo. Uh, imagine how much smaller and how much more rudimentary in a certain way you might uh, say Vancouver was in the 50s and 60s. Um, the, you, you had a t- place that was certainly not uh, had the same number of night spots uh, that you have now. Um, there was no place to go out and eat. I remember Red Robinson telling me there were no good restaurants in Vancouver till uh, you know the late '60s. There was no—I mean, all the food was pretty bland and boiled bread and you know a chicken cutlet or open face sandwiches. Speaking of open face sandwiches, we'll get to something like that later. Uh, and it was a very there was you were, what you had as a logging town, almost a, a port city. Uh, I remember as a kid, even you know False Creek b- being full of log booms. So you can imagine how much smaller and how, how, you know, in a way, boring was. Now, you have to understand that the three names of people you just mentioned were all visitors to Vancouver. And therefore, they were visitors. They were only here a few days. So as is often with, with the case, particularly probably in Vancouver, and you say might be said today why people, some people say, oh, I came to Vancouver, it was cold, or you know, no one was friendly. Well, I don't know who you met while you were here, the people who say that. But I, I would have said the exact same thing 
uh, to Dylan Thomas or Alistair Crowley or Andy Warhol. They were obviously got had nobody taken into their confidence that took them to the penthouse. Took, yeah. Because because at the t- whereas people were saying that place where you couldn't get a drink or there was where there was there, you couldn't buy booze on Sundays, you couldn't do anything else. Certain the 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 beer halls closed up early. Well, if you went down there with nothing except the money in your wallet, you could get a drink at any hour. You could find you could find people to hang out with. There were always shows going on. Some of Vancouver's greatest musicians that were around at the time, pe- piano players like Chris Gage, guys that gave Oscar Peterson a run for their money, were down there jamming all the time. So that's the whole thing. I mean, it, it, uh, there, there's, there's always been this sort of the, that idea of Vancouver that this has been this sort of, oh, it's a sleepy you know, city in those years, and we don't have a... Uh, we don't doesn't have much history to us. A new city. Well, that's not the case. That's the, that's the easy way out. There's a lot of people who like to say that to to make their own because they have their own agenda. In truth, there was a lot going on. So Alistair Crowley, he didn't make it to the penthouse. How did Sinatra or Sammy Davis hear about the club? Was that through Edna Randall? And how did you find Edna Randall? Could you explain like how did Sinatra and Sammy Davis Jr. find the penthouse? Well, the before the penthouse was up and running, the Filipponi uh, brothers ran a place called the Palomar Ballroom. The Palomar was one of the gr- sort of great lost ballrooms of the city. And uh, it was uh, a, a, a supper you know, club, basically, a dancing club. And they had, and, and Nat King Cole performed there, uh, Ella Fitzgerald performed there. A lot of stars of the day came through on tour and whatnot. And the Filipponi family got involved in that club. It was already up and running, but they got involved with the, with the management that were running it, sort of became business partners, and sort of got their feet wet in the club industry and met a lot of the booking agents from New York and Los Angeles and in between that would handle a lot of these acts. So they were bringing people like Sammy Davis Jr. up to Vancouver to play these places. Uh, and they already had a history with them. So... It was a very common thing that, that once they did a show at the Palomar, they'd go over to their place at the penthouse and hang out further. And uh, what you had was a situation, of course, where uh, you know, they were not only booking uh, you know, African-American entertainers, but also housing them as well. The Sammy Davis Jr. and his family, the Will Maston trio, his old band, uh, didn't have a lot of money on tour, so they were put up at the family home, which is the house right next door to the penthouse that's still there. When was the last time that Sinatra and Sammy Davis Jr. actually went to the penthouse? When did they stop going to the penthouse? Well, that's an interesting story. In the case of Sammy, in the case of pardon me, Frank Sinatra, uh, Sinatra, uh, after his maybe his third encore in 1957 uh, at the Orpheum Theater, said, "Folks, that's it. That's all we got. We'll see you all at the penthouse." And people, 2,000 people, filed out of the Orpheum in a hurry and ran down Seymour Street like a mob to line up at the penthouse to get in. They had to sneak Frank in the back door. That was in 1957. But uh, Danny Filipponi, the owner of the penthouse, now tells the interesting story that he was there w- one night uh, in the early 80s, I guess it was, uh, watching Monday Night Football, and the phone rang, and this guy said, ah, is, uh, is Ross there? Ross is uh, Danny's father, Ross Filipponi, who started the club with Joe and the other three brothers, and said to him, uh, and said, Danny said, ah, no, he's at home sleeping. And he goes, well, just tell him uh, Frank Sinatra called. He said, what, what, hold on a second, hold on. And, uh, and, and said, I can get him down here uh, if, if I let him. And he goes, no, 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 don't wake him up. Just tell him I called to tell him Frank said hi and this and that. So, and the penthouse still gets calls like that today from people. Speaking of the characters who are upstairs, Vincent Price was upstairs. Yeah, he was involved in a food fight with Mickey Filippotti. Uh, one of the dancers uh, came up one time just to see what was going on or see who was hanging around upstairs, and she said uh, she saw Vincent Price there, and at another table, Mickey, uh, one of the Filippone brothers, was there, uh, at, and they were still having a conversation with their guests that were on either table. They weren't seated at the same table, and they were throwing bread rolls and, and whatnot at one another and still pretending to carry on this conversation. 
So it was a you you it was a place where I think the you know a lot of people went to sort of let down their hair or necessarily they weren't bothered uh, by people. And I think a, to it really to a certain extent that happens today. I'm always astonished when uh, in, when I speak to Danny at the penthouse when he tells me, oh, uh, you know, Will Smith just shot a movie here, and he doesn't, there's never any mention of it. It doesn't seep out into the the Georgia Strait, you know, gossip sections. Uh, you know, Snoop Dogg filmed a video there. Avril Lavigne filmed a video there. Um, What's my name too by Snoop Doggy Dogg? There it is. And uh, thank people you for, can actually see that video like right now on yeah, YouTube. Yeah, there Type you go. in Snoop Dogg, what's my name? Two, what's my name? Two. Two it's a sequel, yeah. And they will see the marquee right there off the penthouse. Yeah, there you go. Also in Star 80, too. Right? That's right, that's right. And again, we're speaking here to Aaron Chapman, author of Liquor, Liquor Lust, Lust, and, and the, the Law, on the Nardwarta Human Serviette Radio Show, a book all about the legendary penthouse nightclub in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Who designed the penthouse exactly? Why is it made to to look the way it's made to look. Well, originally the family bought, the family who, who were living next door in that building that still stands there, that, that house that you see next door to the penthouse, that old residential house, is actually the oldest building in downtown south that still exists. It was built in 1896 uh, by a Scotsman named Thomas McRae, who uh, the McRae family lived up there all the way up in the 1930s before the Philipponis, who had come from Italy and stopped, had a few years in Vancouver Island. Uh, then came to Vancouver and bought that house. They bought the land next door in 1941 for the princely sum of $1,400, which you can imagine today how much that's not only tripled, but tripled a thousand times in, uh, in today's money. There was a radiator store there before that was just a one-level thing, so they bought that space and then added to it, which is the reason why sometimes when you look at the building, there's looks like there's a it's sort of put together in a couple different blocks. Um, and it's been added to. And, of course, when you go inside, you can almost see a, where the split down the middle is, where they basically joined two buildings. Um, so it, when it was built in that time, it was interesting because there were ads in the, uh, in the newspaper where that sort of announced the new business, which was in the beginning just a trucking and taxi company called Diamond Cabs and the Eagle Time Delivery uh, Company. And it, was, it seemed like Joe had sort of built the whole thing on contra deals where he'd say, I'll do this for you. If I'll give you some free deliveries if you're able to give me some bricks to do this and that. And, and it was quite enterprising and sort of built the whole thing that way. It's quite an, and it's incredible to look at the, some of those old newspapers to see how some of the, build, you know, the building developed that way. Um, just amazing. And how about the plumbing? Maybe you could talk a little bit, please, Aaron Chapman, author of Liquor Lust and All, about the Filippone family, because they were all heavily involved in the penthouse. Oh, yeah, you can't Whereas separate them. if it was Richards on Richards, they'd have to call it a Roto-Rooter man. <laughs> Why did Richards on Richards Club in Vancouver have to call a Roto-Rooter man? Well, there's a notorious story, and I'd written uh, on uh, in Guttersnipe, the online magazine, a uh, sort of an elegy for... Uh, uh, Richards on Richards, and one of the um, one of the things I found in during the rich, in, during the research on Richards on Richards was that in the eighties, and this was the height of the Miami Vice uh, cocaine ridden years of the club, that um, the there were so many cocaine straws jamming up the toilets at Richards on Richards that they had to call the rotor rooter man every ten days to uh, snake the uh, the plumbing. Um, the Filipponis didn't have that trouble because they just called Jimmy. Wasn't Jimmy involved? Jimmy, in the well, they had to, if that was, if it was ever a problem, I don't know if it was. I mean, probably every bar had their fair share of that in the 1980s. Uh, yeah, Jimmy was the uh, was the maintenance guy. Sort of overlooked uh, 
the building and whatnot. Right now, we have some tunes that you'd like to expose the people to. Sure. A song, Milkshake Murder. Well, not Milkshake Murder, but a song. Well, please explain well, here. Well, we're going to jump topics here a little bit to an incident in Vancouver, a little Vancouver history. In uh, 1965, a, a radio DJ from CKNW named Rene Castellani got up on top of the Bomax sign. Now, everybody, if you don't know where the Bomax sign is, you might not see it because it's at where the Toys R Us is now on uh, Broadway. Now, it's still there, uh, covered up partly. But in 1965, Rene got up there uh, and as a stunt for the radio station, was going to stay up there until all the cars were sold as, uh, from the Bomax car lot. In reality, what he was doing was he was sneaking down at night and poisoning his wife and using the fact that he was up on the sign as an alibi. It was all over the uh, papers, and the papers called him the milkshake murderer for it. And you have a little song all about that here on the Nardwarta Human Serviette Radio Show. Vancouver Broadway, 1965. The summer heat slittered and crept, and the asphalt was breaking a fever of 102. Coupe de Villes and Buicks are swimming up and down the dark street at night, floating like manta rays under the warm amber of a traffic light. There's a playbill down at the cave for Mitzi Gaynor coming soon. Man, that gal has legs from here to who hid the broom. Out on Kingsway, a street cleaner's mopping up the street. While inside the NB Steakhouse, somebody's mopping up the gravy from their plate with a slice of Wonder Bread so white you could clean a piano with it. Others are at home falling asleep, bathed in the warm light of their Indian chief TV test pattern, asleep in the glow of their Curtis Mathis or Zenith Electra homes. Broadway's lit too. Broadway's bathed in red and blue. Ruby and sapphire neon tubes glowing ten stories high from the Bomax sign. Glowing, buzzing, and flickering at a 60-cycle home. Standing tall at the front of the Bomax car lot every night. Pouring neon light down the street and reflecting off all the chrome in the lot. And maybe the old neon sign sizzled just a little more in that 1965 summer. Castellani was his name. Rene Castellani. A radio man from CKNW who got on top of the sign bound to stay on top until all the cars have been sold for the lot. <laughs> Folks, I'm going to stay up here until Bomax sells every car it's got. So get down here and get me off this sign. Come down and see a new Fleetwood Eldorado on top. Four white feet, music and heat, wheel skirts and opera lights, with a comfort deal steering wheel with a walnut trim, and a V8 engine that purrs like a hen. You can drive one off the lot today. Come down to Bomax on Broadway. And you could drive down Broadway and see Castellani that summer, making friends with the seagulls. Tune in AM night.
or uh, I mean, uh, not that uh, look anything like that chick off Jersey Shore. <laughs> you know, anyway. Uh, well, thank you, wire. thank you so much, Naked Poet. Really no, appreciate hey, hey, that. I gotta say, you're causing more drama than Obama on a llama smoking ganja with the the Dalai Lama going to visit his grandma. You rock, Nardart. Well, Thank you much. Do 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 Oh no! What's amazing? This the naked poet is sort of psychic because you mentioned Obama, but Bill Clinton and the penthouse tied together, and of yes. course Snoop Dogg, who she kind of referenced there. We already mentioned yes. ties into penthouse. How does Bill Clinton fit in with the penthouse? Well, when uh, Clinton, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> pardon me, visited the uh, city, Clinton came with the APEC Commission uh, or the APEC uh, meeting summit meeting that was in Vancouver and. Uh, this was sort of concurrent around the same time that the Monica Lewinsky story was all over the news, if you might remember back a few years ago. Uh, and actually, Bill Clinton bought the cigar in Vancouver. Is that is that? He actually good? bought the cigar in Vancouver. Uh, but uh, make, back to you, A.O. Chapman. Makes, makes total sense. Well, out front of the penthouse marquee, they had a sign that read, Dear President Clinton, uh, welcome to Vancouver. Our lips are sealed which was a very thinly-veiled reference at the time that was what was happening in the news with the Lewinsky scandal and, uh, and whatnot. And I, um, Danny Filippone got a call from the people that were planning the president's uh, parade route, essentially, or, you know, I say parade route, almost like a JFK thing or a motorcade, because it was going to either perhaps come down Seymour Street uh, and drive right by the penthouse where Clinton would have seen that sign. And uh, whether it was, I don't know if it was the U.S. Secret Service or some arm of the White House said, Sort of is you know we're not telling you not to do anything, but it would be uh, it would we're asking if it would be possible here for to in the name of uh, you know friendliness and good sport here just to change the sign or take it down. And uh, I think they'd already had their fun with it for a while, and and uh, Danny didn't necessarily want uh, any any negative visit from the U.S. Secret Service people, so they went ahead and changed it. But it, uh, it that that made the papers as well. Just another time that the penthouse made the papers. Aaron Chapman, author of Liquor Lust and the Law, all the different gigs and people that have passed through there is quite amazing. Mentioned the Ladybirds, Deep River Boys, yeah, Louis Armstrong, Max Baer, Gary Cooper, Sugar Ray Robinson, Tempest Storm, the Velveteens, and Bobby. Con, Bobby Con <laughs> as well. What do the Filipponis remember about all those groups of people passing through the penthouse? Well, it's it, I interviewed Ross Filipponi uh, before he passed away. I probably did the the last uh, really significant uh, interviews uh, that he, uh, he that he did. I, I went to his home in Oak Ridge and uh, spent the better part of that afternoon with him, and then an, a variety of phone calls uh, afterwards. Originally for this Vancouver Courier uh, story that I wrote. Um, so he was very free willing to talk uh, at that point. He had a really razor sharp memory for who had played there, even if they weren't necessarily, you know, music that he cared for, like uh, you know Led Zeppelin or something when they came in uh, after they had done a show or something like this. Who was Vern Campbell, and what was it about him posing as a John and in working with his quote prankster coworkers? <laughs> well, Vern Campbell is a retired Vancouver Police Department constable. Great guy, uh, has lots of great stories of the uh what it was like to be in the uh, a police officer in Vancouver in the 1960s 70s and uh and 80s he uh was in for about 9 months uh in the early 70s was put on the Vancouver Vice Squad uh detail and what it entailed was you usually work for yourself and two other guys in the Vancouver Police Department and one guy would two other guys would stay hidden in a car down the street or keep an eye on the front door and one guy would go in Sit down, strike up a conversation with uh, 
one of the working girls that were in there and agree at a sum or and a negotiation was made uh, for whatever uh, act that uh, that uh, he was pretending to look for, and then they'd both walk out from the club. The signal would usually be he'd scratch his head or you know, uh, do something visible that like that that the other two guys would see, and then the girl and uh, Vern would then walk to, you know, Vern's car, or they were going to go get a cab over to uh, a hotel, nearby hotel, which is very often, frequently the Bosman Hotel or the Burrard uh, uh, Motor Inn or the, or the other hotel, Burrard Hotel up on, the, uh, on Burrard Street there. But very often it was the case is once the... If once the girl and Vern would go to the car, if he was working with a couple of guys that were pranksters or, or wanted to give him a hard time, they would wait a little while before they showed up to do the arrest um, and whatnot. So sometimes the girl would, might be getting a little fresh, and Vern would be sweating a little bit, wondering how far this was going to go before the guys revealed themselves and, uh, and arrested the girl. Now, was Vern working part of this big court case that was going on? What's the difference between the different court cases that are going on? And again, for people that maybe don't know, why was the court case launched? Well, the, in, the, by, in, by the end of 1975, uh, the Vancouver uh, Police Department filed charges against the Filipponi brothers. And in 1976, the, the, the case be, uh, began of uh, Her Majesty the Queen versus Celebrity Enterprises and Mickey Filipponi, Ross Filipponi, Joe Filipponi, etc. Uh, the Penthouse Six, they were called. Uh, the court case happened where uh, at the old courthouse, which is now the Vancouver Art Gallery, uh, and one of the biggest, really final court cases of the time before the Art Gallery took over the place. Um, the, it was the Crown's intent that the Filipponi family were living off the avails of prostitution because the girls were paying a cover charge. Every time they came in and left, they would have to pay again, and this would be a $2, $50 cover charge. Now, a lot of clubs today, if you leave and you, a place like the Commodore, if you leave and you we want to come back later in the night, you've got to pay again to come in. There's not you know, the in-out policy, I guess, as they they had. So essentially what you had is, is, the, is the police uh, saying and, and uh, that uh, believing that the Filipponi family were somehow orchestrating these, these as well. In fact, what they were really doing is they were just really looking the other way. It was quite obvious that the, the, the fact that the girls were there, were, there were, pretty, were good for business. They brought guys in. They brought guys in to see the show. They brought guys in to, use their, to, to eat at the restaurant. Uh, I mean, there was a, anybody that talks about being at the penthouse there at that time, if you went in at 8 o'clock at night uh, just when the place opened, as a guy, you might walk in, there might be 40 women sitting up against one wall there, and you think, man, this is the place for me. Now, if you didn't know, well, well these girls are going to give you a receipt at the end of the date, you know, like. Uh, so that was the thing. They, 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 uh, the Filipponi family were found guilty, uh, or the Filipponis were found guilty of, of the charge, and then they won an appeal. Uh, interesting enough, Thomas Braidwood, who... Vancouverites would later know, or maybe not know from the Braidwood inquiry, uh, was the uh, lawyer that helped uh, aid in the appeal, and they won that case when they took it all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada. The Filipponis f- simply felt that they were innocent, and they, and you know history shows really that they were. It was a mistaken uh, uh, mission from the police department to really blame them specifically. Interestingly enough, when they when they closed the penthouse, when they shut the penthouse down for three years, while this court case played out from 1976 up until 79, uh, the it, fl- it flushed the hookers out on the street and where they had previously been inside and working and in an environment where, you know, people sort of kept tabs on them. They, you know, the Filipponi saw where they were going. You would have never had a situation like uh, Picton, uh, you know, in, in recent years who would have come in and, you know, the Filipponis would have reckoned, who was I saw, you know, so-and-so with that weird guy, made, would have made a note of it. Uh, it, it caused a lot of uh, disorder, uh, 
in, in the streets because now suddenly neighbors in you know up on Davy Street had to contend with uh, neighborhood prostitution. And almost everybody agrees shutting down the penthouse was a bad idea. We can tell the people A.O. Chapman about the tire iron and the knob. The, the tire iron? Well, the this tire is, iron and the towel and the knob and the high heels. Oh, well, this is from... Uh, this is from the Some of the characters. Al Abraham, who was a, one of the guys that hung around the penthouse in the early to mid-1970s. He was sort of hanging around the periphery of some of the Vancouver mafia, these characters and these criminals that would come in, basically because they liked drinking there and liked eating there. Um, this was another reason why the police thought the penthouse was up to no good, because these guys liked hanging around there. Um, he told the story of uh, some of the... Uh, they would go to these after-hours parties with some of the hookers from the penthouse who would talk shop at the end of the day. And, uh, and one of the girls described uh, ser servicing a, a well-known stockbroker in Vancouver who wanted to go down to Terminal Avenue in the middle of the night and uh, be whacked on the ass with a tire iron. And also was a towel around a knob and some high heels, and some, too. Yeah, stomp up and down. I mean, yeah, this kind of thing. Yeah, these, these guys that were, uh, that were into uh, this sort of thing. Could you explain Joe Filipponi's death? He was killed for less than $1,000. Joe Filipponi's tragic death. Joe was, the, of course, the, the, the head of the penthouse, the, the very famous uh, figure in Vancouver, knew everybody, very public figure. Uh, he had been, uh, he was home one night um, at the house next door. This didn't happen in the penthouse. A lot of people confuse uh, thinking that his murder happened at the penthouse. It was actually in the house next door. Uh, he had arranged for a plumber to do uh, some work uh, at the penthouse uh, one night, and instead of the plumber showing up, the plumber's uh, accomplice uh, showed up, a gentleman by the name of Scott Forsyth, a 25-year-old laborer from Smith Falls, Ontario, who was in Vancouver for just a few years and um, at that point. And he, and, uh, he was somebody that uh, Filipponi had seen with um, uh, Sid Morrisrow, who was the plumber at the time. At any rate, Morrisrow comes in to make a long story short, uh, long story short, pardon me, Pardon the pun. Uh, uh, be, shoots Filipponi in a bungled robbery to get at a, the contents of a safe. In many ways, it was the final card of the trial from 1976 playing out, where the media splashed stories in the paper about how the safe was full of a million dollars at the penthouse at any given time. They were making so much money off there from the booze and the women and all this that was going on. In reality, it was really just nothing more than a change float that was sitting in that uh, in that place. So Forsyth took the money and took off and then later met up with the Morris Row that night. Um, a lot of Vancouverites who would know the Morris Row name would know it from the last decade's worth of stories because of Tammy Morris Row, who was Sid Morris Row's daughter who battled to get her father out of jail because when she was a young girl, one quite a, somewhat of a still a young girl, go, going out and seeing her father at the prison out in Mission that he was in, a, a cellmate of uh, Ciancio's, or pardon me, a cellmate of Morris Row's named Sal Ciancio, uh, was tried to sort of strike up a conversation with Tammy Morris Rowe, saying that she knew, or probably that he knew, the real reason why uh, why her father, uh, you know, was, was innocent, or he knew the real story behind the murder, and he was a distant uh, relation to the Filipponi family, uh, you know, using whatever his Italian last name is uh, to, you know, maybe, maybe as gain some curry some favor with her or whatnot, or that, that lent some credence to. Her. The story, in reality, uh, it was nothing more than a pickup line. Um, and it was surprising that none of the Vancouver papers at the time ever asked the Filipponi family if this was true. They all became quite enamored with Tammy's story because what she did was is she went undercover herself. When Ciancio got out of jail and returned to his criminal ways as a, a, as a big cocaine dealer in Vancouver that was involved in a, in a very big murder out in Abbotsford, 
she tried to find out more about that and went to the RCMP, you know, tape-recorded some conversations with Ciancio, all in an effort to bring this evidence to the RCMP. She married him, too, didn't she? She married him as well, yeah, while she was already married. Um, He beat her. Uh, You know, an incredible... uh, she was incredibly devoted to her father and the belief that he was innocent, but in reality, uh, uh, Morris Rowe was guilty. He was, of course, not there the night of the shooting, but he was instrumental in, in, in uh, certainly making sure that, Morris, uh, that Scott Forsyth gained access. Uh, Morris Rowe died just a few years ago. He was, uh, he was let out of prison on sort of compassion grounds because he was quite sick, and I attempted to get uh, in touch with Scott Forsyth, who was alive uh, and well. He's in his 50s now. And uh, I contacted his parole officer and offered to uh, print anything that uh, Forsyth wanted to say unedited. I wouldn't trim his statements or still make him sound guilty. All the information that I had read about uh, Forsyth's time in jail made him sound like he was a model prisoner, and he did get his life together again. But uh, Forsyth uh, did not want to talk to me for the book. You are Aaron Chapman, author of Liquor, Lust, and the Law. And where can people get a hold of Liquor, Lust, and the Law, Aaron Chapman? You can get it at any bookstore. It's, uh, it's been a very popular book, I'm very happy to say. So some stores are sold out. Best maybe to call ahead. But also, of course, on Amazon and, and uh, direct from uh, Arsenal Press, from the Arsenal Press website. And the penthouse is still going strong today, but it almost ended a couple years ago with a fire. Just last year. Just last year in November, there was a fire in the upstairs part of the uh, building. And uh, that uh, it, it believed, I think, started from a, uh, a cigarette uh, that had in a dressing room uh, up there. But yeah, the, it, uh, the fire, it was lucky that it didn't spread as much as it did. It had, it, had the fire began in the bar, or in the big open air with a lot of oxygen there, uh, as the fire department uh, uh, battalion chief who was on site that night, Randy uh, Habenton, uh, Battalion Chief Habenton just sort of described to me how they fought the fire that night and whatnot. He's a veteran of the Vancouver Fire Department. It, and a veteran of the Penthouse. And a veteran too. of the Penthouse because, as, as funnily enough, at, towards the end of the interview, he said, well, there's one extra thing that helped f- probably fight the fire that night because when he first joined the fire department uh, and in the back in the 1970s, I guess, he uh, used to go down to the Penthouse with some of the boys and he ended up dating a couple of the dancers that worked there. So very often he was invited backstage and backstage to the dressing room. So when they entered the building that night with the hoses and the axes to fight this fire, he knew to tell the boys, no, guys, it's not right, it's left, and we'll go up this way because he was familiar with the building. There's so many stories like that, that I, and people that I came across that intersected or with the penthouse or had some knowledge of it or stuff like that. You just can't make that stuff up. Coming up right now, we have something maybe related to the penthouse. Oh, it's something boy. from the... Open Sandwich Club? Recorded live at the Open Sandwich Club. By oh, actually, sorry, at the Open... O- open Face Sandwich Club, pardon me. This is a record by the great Eddie Mack. But Eddie Mack is back. And uh, do we? is there a year we have on this, Nardward? Is it? Do you know? I'm not sure. But this is the type of entertainer that would play the penthouse, right? Sure, sure thing. Eddie Mack, uh, this is from on, uh, on, rec- on Sandwich Records in Vancouver, Canada. So this is probably like a self-release thing uh, manufactured by Rotter Records Pressing. In Rotter Bur- Records in Burnaby. In Burnaby, yeah. So, and with liner notes by Wendy, Wendy Normando. So, Wendy, if you're out there and if you're listening, please contact us because we'd like to know more about Eddie Mac. But the cover, I mean, if you, if you ever get a chance to see this, is Eddie Mac playing at a piano, looking over his shoulder, and there's a naked woman with long hair uh, staring down at him uh, from on top of the uh, player piano. It's, uh, it's just amazing.
Eddie Mac recorded live at the, the Open, Open Face, Face Sandwich, Sandwich Club. Club. Live. To end my interview on the Nardwarta Human Serviette radio show with Aaron Chapman, author of Liquor Lust and, and the, the Law. Law. Well, thanks so much, A.O. Chapman. Keep on rocking in the free world. Yeah. And doot doot a loot do. Doot doot. And now, ladies and gentlemen, live and direct from the Open Face Sandwich Club, may I present the one and only... Eddie Mack! <laughs> Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. You know, this, this album is being done in Vancouver, British Columbia. And this is the second time I've been in Vancouver. The first time was six years ago. That's when I met Bob Smith. And I checked into the Vancouver Hotel, and we show people have superstitions and idiosyncrasies, and one of mine is to open the top drawer of the dresser in every hotel I'm in. And I did at the Vancouver Hotel. And I found what I always found in all the hotels, and that was a copy of the Gideon Bible. Well, last September I came back to Vancouver, checked into the same hotel, the same hotel room, and I opened the top drawer of the same dresser, and I was surprised to find how modern Vancouver had become, because there in the middle of the dresser drawer, in place of the Gideon Bible, was a copy of the Happy Hooker. <laughs> and to find the best hotels today, where rent is cheap and life is gay, always features service with a smile. A staff that's courteous and discreet, no house detectives with flat feet, are there to bother you or cramp your style. However, you should always watch your step. That is, if you care about your rep. Now, you may fool the doorman, the bellhops, and the floorman, but you can't fool the boys behind the desk. And though the manager may greet you, say, I'm awfully glad to meet you, you can't fool the boys behind the desk. Why, those fellows have you spotted when they first hand you the key. You may yawn, pretend you're sleepy, act as tired as can be. But they know damn well you've got a date with some bag in 603. No, you can't fool the boys behind the desk. Now a couple married 50 years checked into a hotel. When they were shown the bridal suite, the husband said, oh, hell. Why, man, we've been married 50 years. I told you in advance, said the clerk, I could put you in a ballroom, but you wouldn't have to dance. <laughs> and had a girl up in a suite. When the room clerk called him, he got whiter than a sheet. Have you a woman in your room? He answered yes and shook with fear. The clerk said, that's okay, pal. The boys down here were betting you were queer. <laughs> Two old maids phoned the desk clerk and raised an awful fuss. They said there's a naked man posing right across the court from us. The clerk said, I can't see a thing. You sure girls aren't drunk? They said, can't see a thing. Will you climb up on top of that trunk? You can fool some of the people some of the time. A guy like me all the time, but you can't fool the boys behind the desk. But the best one is about the girl who phoned the other day. She said, I've got a leak in the bathtub. Please do something right away. The clerk said, go ahead, lady. No one's looking. It's okay. You can't fool the boys behind the desk. <laughs> See, I told you it was satire.